Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon and I'm here with my friend and esteemed colleague, John Kaplan. Cap, how are you, bud? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. Everything's good? Everything's good, brother. (laughs) Hey, Cap, our next guest has spent 30 years in the recruiting business. Bill has seen every possible recruiting and interviewing scenario. And you're going to find that some of his experiences and stories are incredible. Leaders of all levels should appreciate his valuable advice on recruiting talent, the technology marketplace, and how to execute a quantifiable growth plan. Today, he is the managing director at Foster Beck Associates. Cap, please help me welcome a person that has helped build sales infrastructures for hundreds of the most prominent venture-backed software companies, Bill Sia. Hey, Bill, it's, uh, it's great to meet you. I've heard a ton about you and uh, really looking forward to, uh, to having you on. And, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for carving out the time. Absolutely. Thanks both of you for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, Bill, let's just jump right in if that's okay. Let's talk about how companies hire at various stages of growth. So if we broke it down simply and said there were just like four phases, you know, product market fit, deal stage, scale stage, and then, you know, maturity stage, how do or how should, you know, companies hire differently at each of those stages? Well, John, I think that when I look at companies and what stage they're in, the first thing you're going to do is look at where they are from a funding perspective, right? And obviously, there's a tremendous amount of data online. You get an idea of not only looking at the funding, but looking at the people that are there today and maybe the people that left and didn't work out early in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the funding piece is important because the funding piece really dictates what is the profile of the person that you're going to need to hire in those individual stages. Okay. I've, I think I once spoke with you about the fact that companies work very hard to develop a product after they develop a product, they work really hard to get funding of some sort, maybe an angel round um, initially, maybe self-funding. But then where I think a lot of companies drop the ball is really understanding the talent uh, part of the equation, which candidly, I can give you a couple of reasons why that is. But I think unless a founder of a company has built an organization before, they are a lot of them are super smart super driven, but they don't understand necessarily the go-to-market from a sales perspective. They've never done it. And they don't always understand what is the role of the salesperson. I had a gentleman that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, He was a systems admin who built a a great DevOps company, but he kept saying to me, Bill, I I could sell this stuff myself. Like, I I can't imagine that I'm going to, I want to hire more developers. I want to hire more infrastructure. I, I, I don't understand why I have to pay these people an exorbitant amount of money when candidly, this stuff sells itself. So you always have to be cognizant of what type of founder are you dealing with? Are they business oriented? Are they technically oriented? Have they done it before? And do they understand the initial need role and, and then how to scale out that infrastructure? Yeah, you find it all the time, Bill, where the CEO thinks that they can sell it and they can sell it because they know everything about it. <laughs> they built it and they happen to have this title on their business card called CEO. But when they have to scale out a sales force with hundreds of salespeople, you know, that's a different story, as you already know. 
and they know that from a cost perspective, when you really look at what it costs to build out the sales and marketing part of an organization, which is going to generate no revenue initially, it's a very tough pill for these people to swallow, right? I've had people tell me that for that amount of money, why don't I just outsource sales? I raised $20 million, but you're going to burn through my capital and I'm not going to see any type of uh, return on my, on my investment until these people are actually productive, right? And, and that is something that if a recruiter can't make an impact at that point, they're not going to be successful because you're going to see the way the company's driving. So then how do you make sure that you're adjusting to the CEO or founder, especially at that product market fit stage or even the deal stage, to educate them on why they need the type of, per- type of impact player that they should have at that stage? The first thing you do is you, you pray that there's someone on the board that understands and has built this before, and they're able to exhibit some type of influence over the uh, CEO, because we're assuming at this point there isn't a CRO in place. And if there is a CRO in place, then that person needs to be your champion and advocate for the fact that they did their due diligence before they took the job. And if part of their due diligence was conveying to the CEO, the founder, what their growth plans are, then you need that person to be in in your camp. If it doesn't, it's game over. It's not going to work. And I could give you, you know, examples of a lot of companies. And again, I'm focused more on the technical side. I put software really into two buckets very, to be very simplistic. It's either infrastructure or it's application software. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you have, I always say not everyone is a Iacharia, right? Not everyone is a Slootman, right? You have people that haven't done it before and are really just looking at the cost structure. And if a CRO takes a role with an organization like that, and he hasn't impacted them before accepting the role by building a plan, then there's going to be a problem. So let's go back to the three big stages, product market fit, deal stage, scale stage. What have you seen, at least in general terms, of the type of salesperson or even CRO that's a best fit for each of those stages and how those stages change? Right. So... When you look at that from a stage standpoint, obviously, as the company evolves, there's going to be different attributes that an individual has to has to possess to be successful. One thing I always say, a job description, you don't hire off of a job description. You get to a company, there's someone in HR or recruiting that has put together a job description, and candidly, it's meaningless initially. I want to speak to the people on the product side. I want to speak to the people that are on the systems engineering, sales engineering side. Those are the people that truly understand the technology. They understand the marketplace and they should be able to tell you based on the fact they're experienced, what type of person do they think I need to secure to sell this type of product, right? Now, obviously, you know, John, you get the same verbiage every time you ask. I want someone with a high motor. I want a self-starter, right? I, I want someone that is, you know, ha- has built something before. But LinkedIn is your friend because it can help you triangulate and put together what type of people have they hired. A lot of times what you find is that there's no consistency. Right. So let's say you go into an organization, you talk about, after, you know, at a certain stage and they have some sellers. Well, if the sellers all look differently from a background standpoint, then there's something wrong. That's the first warning sign, right? If you have somebody that has done two startups before, you have someone from a publicly traded entity, and you have somebody that can't hold down a role and, and jumps around, someone's asleep at the wheel. That's a and, great point. Yeah. And as the product evolves, for instance, when you're dealing with the company that's in an earlier stage, candidly, you need better horsepower. No one knows who the company is. You need somebody who truly understands how to develop something from nothing. And if someone's at a large publicly traded entity, they're there for a reason. They're there because of perceived security, 
they have they want to adapt to an infrastructure as as opposed to creating an infrastructure. Yeah, so we said in that product market fit stage, you need somebody that can scrounge. So anytime I've gone into those types of companies and I see that they took a CRO from from Oracle or Salesforce.com that never had to scrounge, I always have to scratch my head as to why they put that person in there. I think they do it because they look at that as hiring a name brand, right? It's yeah. the same question of, hey, I'm if the board, if I hire somebody who's coming out of a, you know, $50 million, someone's grew the business from zero to 75 million versus someone who is over at Oracle, Workday, SAP, then it's a safer bet, bigger company, which completely is the absolute opposite, right? right? I have a test when I'm interviewing people. I always ask them, what else are you looking at? If the answer is, you know, I'm looking at uh, this Series B company, but I also have a buddy at Splunk, doesn't work for me. Because right. that means, right, and, and you hear all the time, wow, did you hear how much Bob made over at Snowflake or Tom made over at Confluent or Carol made at Datadog? That's the fantasizer. They want to do that. But in reality, if they're looking at a, at a large entity as well as a startup, they're really just at this point dreaming because that person doesn't have the wherewithal to go and do what's, what's, uh, what's necessary. Yeah, that used to be one of my favorite questions, you know, at the end of an interview, I used to ask people, you know, what other companies are you looking at? And, you know, if I was in the early stages of a company, and then they told me, well, I'm also looking at Oracle or IBM or HP, I'd say, well, what are you, why are you talking to me? Right, right. And it's interesting, because I'm very transparent, you know, one company that was that I built, that became one of the most successful software companies in, in software of the last decade, I remember the first person that I placed at the company was a board referral. And that person was over at HP. And I said to this person, listen, I got to tell you something. You're coming into this company. You're getting a tremendous amount of equity, but it's going to suck because you're going to have legal is going to be a mess. Marketing is going to be a mess. But that's why you got such a nice equity package, because you are going to go to your boss, go to the people that matter and say, look, this is broken. Here's how I would fix it. Well, I wouldn't have hired the person. Wonderful individual. Did not have any idea what it was. So sure enough, and this person had all of Canada, all of New England, wide open. And he ended up calling me up and said, you know, I got to tell you something. Boy, this place is a mess, right? Legal's a mess. He went down the whole thing. Legal's a mess. And 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 God, we ha- I don't have a BDR. I don't have a, I don't have any support. And my, I said, but that's what we talked about. And he said, I, I don't remember because candidly, I think you oversold this opportunity. I'm not going to close it. A matter of fact, I was at my country club with one of the VPs at our biggest competitor, and they wrote on the back of a napkin and showed me how this company will never penetrate the incumbent. Well, make a long story short, that person left after ten months and went to that company from the country club. And I always wonder if how he feels about the reality of the money left on the table. Not because he didn't have the opportunity, he didn't have the understanding of what, how to analyze and fix what needs to be fixed and understand he was going to prosper from that long term. And that's okay. There was not the entrepreneurial component did not exist. So then if we move to like deal stage and scale stage, how have, what type of characteristics or traits have you seen of people that make it or don't make it in those stages? Well, I, I think that w- when that happens, obviously consistent with that, you're going to see an accelerated hiring plan. By that time, the plan is in place. Hopefully you have your competent sales infrastructure that's, that's been developed. And the plan is in place. And what they're going to need to do is hire people that are still of that entrepreneurial ilk, but may again have been typically entering a company at that stage, right? So obviously, there's there's two ways people always talk about the hiring. They say, gee, is this a high-velocity hiring company, right? Well, maybe it is. Snowflake hired a lot of people, but the way they, their model and their go-to-market, that's the way to build the business, get first mover advantage, and build your top-line revenue, right? 
but there are companies that try to mimic that model and they end up putting too many people in too short a period of time. And those people that come in during the, 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 the uh, phases of growth that you discussed, they still need the opportunity to make money, right? That's typically because they're just not Series A folks. And I understand that and I appreciate the fact that they're cognizant of where they fit in. But once that growth takes on, people's biggest then concern and biggest complaint is, well, they just put three guys in my patch. I'll never make money. How am I going to make money here? Right. No one's closed anything yet. Right. Or maybe we've done some POs, paid POCs, but now I've got three people in TOLA. Right. Right. So yeah, you, even if that's the, late, the later, earlier stages, John, you need people that have done it before and they understand that that's going to happen and they got to focus on the task at hand, running their franchise and building out their, their, uh, their base. Yeah, Johnny, you have any questions for Bill on the different stages before we move into try to talk a little bit, go a little deeper on characteristics? Yeah, I'd like to, if you're okay, Johnny, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and just go to the characteristics, Bill, of um, kind of what you've seen out there. And I want to, I'm going to ask you about from the recruit side, and I want to ask you about from the hiring manager kind of sales leader side. So let's start with the recruit side. You've been doing this a long time. What attributes, characteristics um, have you seen that are um, really high leading indicators of success from a candidate perspective? So obviously, past performance is not indicative of future results, right? But there has to be a past performance because we can determine the attribute that's most important, which is quantifiable success. So that, does, but, but, you know, there are people that are going to go to a smaller company and they're going to have the attributes that the hunger, the focus, the integrity, the, you know, the work ethic. But if there's no track record, then how do you really decipher? Because as you know, John, there are people that are fantastic at interviewing. Okay. Yep. And there are people that are fantastic at selling and you really have to decipher the two. And there's a tremendous difference between that. Right. And that really comes into where you really have to torque up the due diligence to make sure that the past performance is quantifiable, which is number one. Uh, number two, the, they, they, they have to have that entrepreneurial gene. Right. They have to um, understand what they're getting into. Um, you can see when you speak to candidates just on the preparation that they do, right, versus candidates who use their buddy's 30, 60, 90 day plan and change the name. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't I could tell you that I must have received the 30 same 30, 60, 90 day plan 150 times. Right. <laughs> they now, downloaded it off the internet. <laughs> it's it's the same plan with a different name. And sometimes they don't even change in the properties the settings. So you could see who the original author was. Oh, right. Wow. But, wow. but, but in my mind, that's almost an unfair question. What give me a 30, 60, 90 day plan, because that person probably doesn't have enough data to build one. Right. That's usually mid interview stage where the manager goes, okay, listen, in our next meeting, give me a 30, 60, 90 day plan. Well, yeah. in, unless you're going to pull that from the public domain, and make a lot of assumptions, to me, I don't like that exercise, right? Now, possibly to articulate or definitely to articulate how you've done that in the past, that to me makes more sense. Let's talk about your past company, right? How you built your, how you built your business. Um, so that's, that's, that's an attribute that I think is, is very important. Um, and I think that, you know, you have to be, hire people that fit into the culture. And what I mean by that is hire people that you know are going to be working with people that are like-minded, okay? There's some candidates that are unbelievably technical, but they might be in a different stage. Every candidate has, has a trajectory of where they are in their career. You have to ascertain where is somebody in their career, okay? There's a spot for that person, but 
everyone's got, it's almost a bell curve, right? Person gets going, they're making money, they're super excited, they're an overachiever. They're, then all of a sudden, their later stage in their career, they decided maybe not to go into management. Maybe the kids are out of the house. Are they going to be able to give that that grind and that level of energy into into the job? And I've had people that are very senior that can blow away anybody earlier in their career, and they've got the track record to prove it. Um, as far as you know, look, I, I think that there's a there's not enough data in any way, shape, or form when I'm going to join a company, okay? And I feel for these people. You can go on and say, uh, say, John, go buy some shares in Zoom. It's going to pop. And you can go pull down all their SEC filings and pour over that, that financial information. And this, you could buy the stock after doing all, all your due diligence, and the stock could still drop. When, you're, when you have a candidate, they're very limited on what data they're really being provided. Companies are not transparent with their funding. So candidates use Crunchbase. What does Crunchbase tell you? Not much. Yeah. Right? Or they go on to PitchBook. tells you who, who participated in the round. It, part, it tells you what round there are, the dates they're at. How do you know? How do you know how many shares are outstanding? Or are there preferences? It's very difficult. So I feel for the candidate. And you have to have somebody that, you know, it is savvy to the market, okay? Meaning I could talk to candidates and they know what's going on in the world around them. Not necessarily that means they're, they're stock pickers or Bitcoin traders, but they're a student of the environment they're selling into, okay? They know the initiatives of certain companies in their territory, right? They know the general software landscape and and. To me, if you're not going to be a student, and especially as a recruiter, if I'm not going to bring you value from a giving you market coaching and market guidance, then what am I really doing, right? If I'm speaking to a candidate, I better know more about the marketplace. If you want to talk to me about Databricks versus Snowflake, we could talk about that all day. I do that by reading, and I want a candidate that's going to do that same level of diligence because if they're not going to do homework in the marketplace, then they're better off going to a marketplace that's not evolving, that's much more developed. Well, it's kind of like um, what you're really saying is candidates are a walking audition for the job. So I hear you talking about risk-taking for the entrepreneurial gene, cultural fit, whether it's a career fit, savvy in the market is <clears throat> preparation that they do. It tells you a lot about the candidate. Are there any, staying on this topic of the candidate for a second, are there any red flags that you can spot a mile away uh, when you first interact with a candidate that, um, that are just common, uh, common red flags? The, the most common red flag you really are able to decipher in your first conversation is why are they willing to take a look into the marketplace? Okay. The, 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 the go-to answer is, my boss is insane, okay? Yeah. They're micromanaging me, right? They're using medic, okay? I had a, I had a conversation with an EMEA leader, true story, in, uh, for an opportunity to open up EMEA for a company. And he said, whoa, 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 is this a, is this a McMahon company? It's a medic shop? And I said, yeah, this company follows medic. He hung up on me, right? To me, you could, people look at it, is it, a, is it a method of manipulation or is it actually a process? You know this, John, is sales uh, something you do when you can't find another job, right? Or is sales something that's actually a scientific approach, right? Yeah. So the first one is, why are you looking to leave your current opportunity, right? <laughs> I get answers of, well, I I'm managing the Northeast and the guy in the West quit. So what? How does that impact your day, right? So understanding why they're making the move and you can understand their psyche as to what's driving their decision, right? And a lot of times it's completely irrelevant nonsense that they're concerning themselves with. And you have to understand that that's going to carry over. That the bad behaviors 
that someone's exhibiting at their current role doesn't die and you start fresh at the new company. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what you work on correcting. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, set process, right? Everyone talks about process, 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 getting into the whole process. world. How do you sell? Right. I remember uh, someone in this business told me, ask someone, give me the top three deals you've ever sold. What are the three biggest deals? And the guy goes, uh, oh, oh, boy, that's a tough one. You know, your two, your three biggest deals. Right. No. You came home and you said, honey, look, look, look at the size of this check. If you don't know your three biggest deals, they probably didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Well, I think you're also talking about, you know, a red flag is somebody that's not self-aware. Like, why are they moving? Um, what gives them energy? What doesn't give them energy? A red flag for you, it sounds like when they're not self-aware, they're not audible ready with that. They can't articulate it. And then they can't articulate how they sell. Um, let's, let's put this over the fence a little bit. I want you to think about hiring managers and sales leaders. And I want you to think about the same question that I asked you. What kind of characteristic and attributes do you love to work with as a hiring, somebody's a hiring manager? Tell me what great looks like when they interact and they, you know, you know, what is, what does great look like when they're ready to interact with people like you to have great outcomes and what does bad look like? So I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of walk us through that from the hiring manager perspective, because I know there's a lot of area of opportunity there. Right. So I think the most important attribute is can they hire? And you can't take that for granted. I know people that are absolutely sales geniuses. They know how to build an organization, but they can't hire. A matter of fact, that's the number one reason VCs say is people get fired is they can't hit their capacity number. Yeah. So I need to understand not only can this person hire, where are they in the organization? Do, do they have power? Are they going to be able to impact, right? So look, the manager, they need to be able to recruit, number one. Number two, they need to enable people. They need to onboard these people and enable these people, okay? And- you could tell a red flag is when somebody has worked at, at three companies, four companies, five companies, they go to a series B company and not a single person that's worked for them in the past is following them. Big. Not, right. Big. How could you not have a situation where somebody that you've cultivated and grown, someone that you mentored, no one wants to work for you. Now, when I ask that question, they say, uh, I, you know, I, I got a hand knock. I got a non compete, or or I, I called. I called all the guys, <laughs> gals in my in my Rolodex, and it's just bad timing for everybody. So that's what I want to understand. It's also yeah. can these leaders generate pipeline, right? I mean, pipeline. You're a seller. You're a leader, but you're a seller. And you know, going back quickly to what we said about you know the larger company people. I always, there's the people that are going to sit in their offices hitting, hitting the enter button on Salesforce, refresh, refresh. I know sales <laughs> leaders that don't go into deals. I know a sales yeah. leader at a company has been there a year. He's never talked to a customer. So, you know, I'm not saying he's got to be like this founder of Costco that visited a different store every week, but how do you generate pipeline, motivate your people to generate pipeline when you have no idea what the field is, is saying about your product? And I think that the other thing is, can the person deliver balanced and predictable forecasting and deliver good results, right? Can they do it? And I'll ask them, how do you do that? What, what do you do to interact with the board? And how do you give them predictable metrics on a consistent basis? Okay. And to be honest with you, obviously, the profile evolves as the company evolves, but you have to hire for the company today and have a plan to do it as the company grows. Yeah. Okay? And I call them when I do a conversation, I do everything based on profile. I try to eliminate what I call the chemistry hire. Oh, that's so funny. John McMahon went to NJIT. So did I. Oh, it's a love fest, right? You forget you're doing a chemistry hire and what you're not doing 
is really sticking to the core profile that you developed. Very hard to build a profile. So what we do is we score the candidates internally against the profile. And if this way, you're not sticking to the profile, and sometimes they don't know the attributes that they need. That's where yeah. I'm going to bring value. You know, the, the, these people, again, we go through the same nonsensical, high-motor, entrepreneurial, but you got to drill into it and understand what the profile is. And again, uh, uh, the majority of companies don't have any idea. Yeah, let's stay on that one for a second on the success profile. I find that just companies are just not prepared, especially over the last few years where the talent pool has been so difficult and they've been so urgent, you know, to, to just bring people on board or what have you. Let's talk about some of the key components we like to talk about in a success profile. There has to be, um, there has to be attributes of success and then there has to be evidence of those attributes that are measurable. Can you talk a little bit about the profile you help companies create? What are the bare minimums that has to be in a profile? Number one, domain expertise. Okay. Not saying that if you go to MongoDB, you have to come from, you know, another database company. But if you're coming into a Mongo, which is clearly an infrastructure play, uh, you can't, in my mind, be successful selling for a application company. I wouldn't put someone in a MongoDB, a HashiCorp, a Confluent who's selling HR payroll or or financial software. It's a completely different scenario. And I think, again, a lot of companies, so that, that, I mean, that's, that to me is one of the key scenarios, right? Yeah. And um, when you're building a profile, what, what else you really need to understand is what is the, how are we going to go? How is the company going to go to market? Okay. In other words, there's many d- different ways companies go to market. They're going to do a vertical approach. They're going to do a geo named accounts, right? I don't believe the Rolodex question is applicable anymore, but I think it's much more important that they at least sold to like industries where they understand the buying process. It's a little bit different to sell to JP Morgan than it is to sell to UPS. Now, could someone who handled Goldman and Citi sell to JP Morgan? Sure, because they understand how banks operate. They understand the buying process. Federal government, obviously, that's a budgetary-driven business. You you want someone who uh, has sold in that market before. Um, I think a lot of times what companies do is even if the main experience is intact, they're putting people into a market segment that they're they're not ready to sell into, right? Because I'm a commercial or a mid-market person. Well, I want to now sell to the Fortune 50, Fortune 100. Then why isn't your current company allowing you to do that? Yeah. Right. Right. That's a big jump. Yeah, that's that's a big jump. Um, again, just to reiterate, you, you're talking about the uh, the tight labor market. The market is extremely tight, right? You got the Dow up a thousand points. You have unemployment being celebrated. I'm sorry, in, uh, inflation at seven point seven. Right. The CPI print was better than expected. The problem you have is we've gone to this distributed workforce. As a sales leader, how do you manage people? when you really have Zoom interaction, right? And unfortunately, part of the issue with the job market, and I know that Elon Musk just said, if you work at tes- uh, Twitter, they did it at Tesla too, you're coming into the office 40 hours a week, right? Companies yeah. have abandoned that, have abandoned that because in the, in the need for talent, it's a, it's, it's a, it's something that people, you know, well, I, I already built a home office or, you know, by the way, I moved out of the Bay Area. Now I'm living in uh, Pittsburgh where I grew up. So you, you really need to figure out from a, a, that stage, how are you going to manage this person? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Let me, uh, let me ask you from a process perspective, and I have a bias on this. I want to see if you share the same thoughts. Like, 
I just don't think enough people today participate in their own rescue on this recruitment process. Like if I'm a hiring manager, you know, back in the day when I worked for McMahon, um, we, we had to own the recruitment process. It didn't mean that we couldn't use great talent like you, Bill, but we had to own the process, meaning we had to care about it more than anybody else. We had to, you know, participate in the process, meaning I hear a lot of stories from, I just heard one yesterday. I was talking to somebody. I said, well, when's your next interview with the people? They liked them. They liked this person, this person liked them. So when's the next interview? And I said, well, oh, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? And they're, they're like, well, I, you know, it wasn't very clear. I asked what the next step was or whatever. And, and now it's going on like, you know, two or three weeks and the, the hiring company, is acting like they have all the time in the world. They're like, it's, it's not prioritized. And, and Johnny and I were talking about this yesterday, actually, is that you, the way you recruit people is a walking audition for yeah. how you're going to manage them. With, um, without question. Could you talk question. a little bit about that? How yeah. do you get the attention of sales leaders to say, hey, you cannot abdicate to me, Bill Sia. I can't be Bill Sia and you abdicate this this, you know, your prioritization of this, how do you get the point across? You have to know before you enter into any hiring cycle, what is the definitive process? Yeah. We track is days on market. It's very simple. I want to know how, what is the process? I want to drive the process because you're going to be competing with other companies that may yeah. have a more streamlined process, right? And if that individual didn't know uh, when, what his next step in the process is, then that's a definitive red flag. Right. Yeah. So typically the process is predetermined. You have 10 business days to hire an eight place player. It's plain and simple because that's what the data is telling you 10 days. And I don't think it's changed. Again, you could look at uh, CNBC and Fox news and they'll tell you about these layoffs, right? Company has uh 500,000 employees are laying off 50 people. I haven't had a single client layoff since the, the, the market has been compressed. And listen, the market is based upon the public markets. It's all about sentiment, right? If the sentiment is crummy because Google lost a trillion dollar market cap, then that's how people are going to feel about hiring, Right. Um, and there's a direct correlation, as you know, for valuation between like companies. I remember when Snowflake was at $400 a share, another company that thought their valuation should be greater than Snowflake's gave the employees an opportunity to sell stock at over $200 a share. And these were, you know, the ability to, uh, uh, you know, uh, be able to take some of your equity off the table, monetize it. And these people said, well, Snowflake is worth $400 a share. We're worth $800. And the majority didn't take it, right? You have, to, you have to be cognizant of what impact the public markets have on these private investment back firms. Mm. I think that that's clear. That, um, makes ton yep. that, make, that makes tons of sense. Johnny, do you want to take us into um, the direction of like the current yeah. market now that we're talking about that? and relate it to, you know, the future and maybe the sure. past. But first I wanted to go back and touch on something you, you touched on briefly, Bill, which is, you know, funding of some of these companies. What I hear a lot of times because money was so prevalent in the last 10 years that a lot of candidates, since they really don't understand the funding process and the valuation process, they always think that more funding is better. Versus, you know, some one company takes 75 million, another company takes at 150 million in the B round, and they're more apt to go toward the company that has the $150 million round. Without question. Because they don't understand how valuations are created. All they're looking at is how much money the, the company took. Can you talk a little bit about that confusion in the market with, especially with young sales reps? A hundred percent. People look at, bit more funding as, as more uh, the VCs being more convinced of their bet. They don't understand how to determine 
how the capital is being used. I tell my candidates, when you go on an interview, you need to understand how are you deploying that $150 million B round? What are you doing or C round? What are you doing with that capital? Is it going to sales and marketing? Is it going into infrastructure, right? What are you doing with that money? And I, I think the misnomer of more money is, is better is something that goes back to the reality that candidates don't know how to determine anything regarding the equity position that they're granted. Right, right. They don't have, but on the flip side, they're also not given the data that they can even take to somebody who's a smart person that understands how the funding works and help and give them the ability to break that down because that's just not available. I've had companies say, we don't release how many shares we have outstanding. We don't talk about that. And then I said, what would you like me to tell the person when they ask, what percentage is my equity? Because it all, it all goes back to a percentage, right? right? You know, I had a candidate that said, gee, oh God, they, they gave me double the amount of shares that you got me. And I said, well, how many shares are outstanding? And they said, 580 million. I said, well, you know, my company has 40 million shares outstanding. Yeah, but the C, but the CRO told me that we're going to 6X this. So man, that means my, but they don't understand. It's irrelevant. It's all, right. it's all, you know, you extrapolate all you want, but it all comes down in the end to what percentage you have yeah. of the company. What slice of the pie did you get? Right. There's, and, only one, there's only one pie. <laughs> right. So, so yes, John, they think more funding is better, but they also don't understand the other. I tell people, go on to Amazon and buy the dummy's guide for options. How equity works. Go buy e-boys. There's a lot of ways you can educate yourself using the data. But it's also about transparency. If someone doesn't want to just be transparent about what the equity universe is at a particular entity, they're hiding something in my mind, right? Or, hey, I had a client that said, well, we got a, got a $10, uh, $15 million B round. I said, yeah, but I don't see that on any of the public domain. He said, yeah, because we don't want to tip off our competitors. That's asinine, right? Yeah. And, and you're doing that because you either A, didn't get the round, B, you did some type of debt deal that you don't want to disclose, yeah. Or, you know, and, and you, it, they, companies need to give more, if they want to get people that are equity driven, if they want to get people that have had uh, liquidation, liquidity events in the past, then they have to be more transparent in equity. Unfortunately, it's getting worse. Yeah. Might be a good uh, episode for revenue builders to do some education, John. I think uh, so, buddy. And uh, we didn't even talk about, like that people don't even realize uh, when they see funding that it, it could be a down round. It could be sure. there's it's a lower valuation and they don't and they don't even know. They just see it's a funding round. Right. So I think you're right, Johnny. There's there's so much there's so much there. And Bill, those are great suggestions for yeah, just and also, basic wanna, knowledge. And I want to see earlier investors participate in future rounds. Because yes. if, right, if you're on the board of a company or you invested in a company, if that company's doing unbelievably well, why would you not participate in the later rounds? I think that's a very key metric that I like to look at because it shows you, did you say, holy moly, I just threw that money out the door. Give me the ability to put more money on the table. So, you know, unfortunately, it's really, really hard to look under those covers and see what the equity piece looks like. Yeah. Now, Bill, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. You've been around for 30 years recruiting and have you seen like any real changes in talent over the last three decades or do you, have you seen talent that's different? Do you think it's about the same? How do you feel about that? I think that if we go back to the PTC days, the, the deck days, the IBM days, back when you started, there was a fundamental investment in people, right? Not from a product training standpoint only, but you, you, they were taught how to sell, right? A lot of the sellers. And, you know, I know at PTC, 
when you first started, you were given particular goals as, as a, a new hire. And if you didn't meet that, you got thrown out the door or out the window, whichever was closer. But I think that companies are to blame because I see companies onboarding people by putting them into a new hire training and teaching them about the product. Where do the people that are two years into their career that graduated from Bucknell, who are now working maybe as a commercial rep, whatever the case may be, how do they learn how to sell? If they're smart, they can learn the product. But companies don't make that investment. Uh, you know, back in the but day. Why is that? Why aren't companies at such a great leverage? Because you spend the dollar and it cuts across, you know, all your salespeople. Why don't companies invest more in training their salespeople? Why do you think? Because it's an anticipated movement. People don't think that the people are going to put the stake in the ground and stay for a long period of time, which was common back in, the, mm. in those days. Right. Mm. So if, I, if you're going to come here and we're going to give you a big base salary and a big non-recoverable draw. And if we're lucky, we're going to get two, three years out of you. Well, well, how much do you want me to spend and how much time we need you in the field? We need you generating revenue. We need you generating pipeline. I can't I can't spend the money to have you sitting in, uh, you know, training. Right. So once in a while, I'll bring in. So so to that point, if someone's coming out of school today and enters as a BDR, how many different companies you think they're going to work at in the next 30 years? You know, 40 years. I think that if I historically tracked it, I would say the movement is at a level that's absolutely idiotic. Listen, the first problem is they're paying people a tremendous amount of money. Right. When you start your career now in the new world we live in, you're working out of your basement. How do you learn? There's no osmosis. Right. When you're in a team or a a team environment, just through hearing an osmosis, you're going to pick up. The attributes that are going to make you a successful seller. Now you fast forward. They are now you have the, the movement component. You have the lone wolf component. You're sitting there by yourself. Right. There's no camaraderie. There's, you know, you want these people to compete, right? You have to compete with your peers. That's that's the way the world works, right? Um, so you don't have the fundamental investment in education. You have people working remotely, okay? And you have, I, I want to say the average amount someone stays at a company is about 1.7 years. Yeah, okay? we had Holly Castro on, who was the um, chief people officer at Yeti. Uh, I think she's moved over to Miro now. And she thought she estimated 15 to 20 jobs. Oh, uh, yeah. College today will have 15 to 20 different, different companies they'll work for. I think without question, and I think the good news is with all the data out in the public domain, when I get someone's CV or I'm looking at someone's LinkedIn profile, they're referred to me, whatever the case may be, you Google the name and a lot of times there's a bunch omitted. Right. So, you know, companies don't do the level of due diligence from a background. We back channel everyone back channels. Right. That's the big term. We back channel a person. It's great. We say, hey, John, you worked with this person before. What do you think? But the reality is very, very, very difficult to confirm employment. That's that's right. first and foremost. Right. So, Bill, do you think that when people show up for uh, their first you know, job interview, do companies go only off of LinkedIn or do you think the candidate needs to bring a resume with them? The candidate, if, if the candidate, absolutely, I believe in the resume. Because if you think that you could really outline your historic achievements, okay, or your attributes that make you a good candidate by a LinkedIn page, then I'd love to see the LinkedIn page that expresses that, right? Because... I want statistics. I go to a car dealership and I get a car brochure. I don't care about the fact it gives a lofty ride through the mountains. I go right to the back. I want to know displacement, horsepower, skid pad. That you should be proud of and be able to outline that. And that's not going to be done during LinkedIn. The people that are A players that understand the market, they want to differentiate themselves, right? They don't want LinkedIn to be a representation. They want LinkedIn to be a summary 
but they want to come in, whether it be a resume, whether it be a leave behind, they want to show their, their, their success and their differentiation. I respect the candidate who says, look, my company doesn't do training, but I paid myself to go take sales training, right? No different than a baseball player going to a batting range, right? If you truly believe sales is a profession, why would you not hone your skills, even if it's on your own dime, because you're building your brand? That's what you're doing. It's all brand building. And if you don't make a fundamental investment in yourself, that's why companies you know, don't want to spend money on you. But, I, uh, you know, going back to the resume or the LinkedIn profile, I've always, you know, equated it to the, the fancy pictures of the hotel in the island resort that look great. And then you show up. Right. And it looks terrible because no one has, there's no third party that certified the resume. There's no third party that certified the LinkedIn profile. So the day that the candidate shows up, they're going to look as good as they ever look. <laughs> and now your job is the, interviewer is to try to find out, you know, what is reality here? Like showing up at the resort and finding out what reality is. hundred percent. I think that a large part of the interview process has become validation. You would think with all of the data in the public domain, validation would be easier. But back in the day, if you wanted to do a background check on somebody, You Mm -hmm. wanted to say, hey, you said you used to work at Oracle or you used to work at PTC. Try to call PTC and get proof that you ever worked there. They don't want the liability. They want it in writing because, God forbid, you Mm -hmm. ask someone at PTC to confirm your employment and they're a temp looking in the wrong system. And they say, McMahon never worked here. And you lose an opportunity because of that. There's a problem. So, right, but at the same time, these days with LinkedIn and all the people that are working at your company, why can't you go reach out to all the people in your company and the people you know that are at the same company that the person said they came from and do a back, do a back channel? You can do a back channel, but you also have to be very careful. Sure. Confidentiality, right? Sure. You can't, I, I've had numerous people call current bosses of an individual or current board members and say, hey, question, what do you think of so-and-so? Well, you just blew up the confidentiality piece. You're going to cause problems, right? So Mm. now we got a double-edged sword. And you don't have time to do the the, the thorough background check because if I say, hey, you know, Susan, I'm getting you an offer, but the offer is going to come probably in about five days because they want to do a background check. Well, guess what? They're not going to sit there and wait five days and let the other companies they, that they're actively in, in a right. process with say, hey, look, I'm actually joining company A, but I'll get back to you in five days if my background check doesn't go well. Right. right? Good point. Really and good. the buyer's remorse is going to happen. To what degree it happens, we have to manage that process. But if you're waiting five days for a background check or seven or whatever it is, you're going to start getting calls from other recruiters and they're going to say, ah, man, you don't want to go there. I know four people that quit this month, right? So a smart company has that definitive process. While that process is going on, they're doing their due diligence from a back channel perspective. They're ready to strike. You have to do, you have to be expeditious through the process or you're going to lose to a company that is doing it right. And there's a distinct difference between the processes that, that, Company A versus Company B uses, and at that, that's you know, and, and the net result is they lose a qualified candidate. Mm. So, just last question on this: Where are we going from here? Do you see any other changes in recruiting or interviewing or the job market in the near future, or or, or the future? Listen, I, I see the job market being extremely tight. I think it's tighter than ever. I don't know how that that is going to get improvement. I don't know how it's going to improve moving forward. Um, I think that you, um, you know, we're at three and a half percent unemployment with an 8.5, 7.7, whatever you want, inflationary rate. The market for tier one talent is extremely, extremely tight. 
And you, people said, well, wasn't it like this in, in, the, in the Internet days? Absolutely not. There were people, they were coming out of college, they were getting jobs at paychecks or ADP or Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And then you said, hey, this guy got hired, this woman got hired at Enterprise, or they were at paychecks. They, we're going to take someone that had a definitive training program and take that person to have them sell software. It's not happening now. People no, are getting so true. I used to hire them out of ADP. Love it because number yeah. one, you knew ADP didn't hire, uh, you know, tier two people, and you knew that if they could stick it out and, and be successful at ADP, they were well trained and well they had good discipline. Man, weekly quotas, right? But now we're taking sellers right out of college, right? right? And even the inflow of, of that, I think, has diminished, and that's what's causing this this brain drain, if you will. Mm. So I think companies have to really figure out the hiring plan, the hiring process, and they have to understand that we're getting someone out of college. Sure, we want the D1 athlete. We've known this. Everybody wants the, the athlete, right? Because you're not a D1 athlete on a full ride unless you're disciplined, okay? But, you know, I see that sales, and, and you know this, has been integrated into a lot of colleges, Right. They have sales. Undergraduates could take sales classes. Yes. And, I think, and that's that's something if a, if a person's earlier in their career, I want to see that they're not taking this role by default because it was either taking a role selling software because Bob down the street makes a lot of money or it's because I really don't want to go to law school. And that was my two options. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, you got any other questions on this topic to, before you transition a little? Well, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I, I know that, Bill, with this vast amount of experience, the uh, uh, a little birdie told us that uh, you're writing a book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, why you're writing it, and maybe you know, just some, just a little bit of a preview about what we can expect to to see when it comes out. Sure, sure. So I, I realized that you know, watching I think Jerry Maguire, right, and the craziness. You are, and I always say I'm the Jerry Maguire for the regular guy, but I knew I had to memorialize the experiences that I've been through, the things that I have seen, and good, bad, the craziness, and I, I want people to be able to understand, ultimately, when they read that book, how they can be more competitive in, in, in the job market, how they can differentiate themselves. The stories I've had over the years, I, and John and I talk about this sometimes, it, it, people don't believe them. I've seen craziness upon craziness. And, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's what happens when you're dealing with people, right? You're dealing with salespeople. You're dealing with people in marketing. They could be a little bit uh, different in, in the way they think, of the different personality. And um, the craziness persisted since the beginning of time. And, uh, you know, it's like, I remember one day I went to a company in New York, they had received funding and I went into their, into their office and they had modeled the um, server room out of the Starship Enterprise, like the transporter room. And I went in there and we were going to dinner at Nobu, which was a big, expensive, you know, Robert De Niro restaurant. Yeah. We were in there and I said to the CRO, so what do you, like, what do you guys really do? He goes, I got no idea, but I think, <laughs> I think we're going to file an S1. I'm hoping that's what happens. We're trying to grow the business, but we're trying to figure it out. So you took in all that money, and that was the crazy days, right? Yeah. Hey, you give me some friends and family, John. I'll give you some friends and family, right? It was right. unlimited tabs, unlimited fun, spending money. And, you know, yeah, the difference now is we have real companies, Okay. Right. You look at, you tell me why Google lost a trillion dollars off its market cap. Why is ServiceNow down 49% this year? The numbers are good. They're being caught in that mindset of, oh, is it 2000 again? Are we going to have an implosion? It was a very different story back then, right? We've got the Bitcoin collapse that's probably coming with this, with the company failing, the trading platform. But the reality is, you look at a company, Confluent put out incredible numbers. The stock got hammered. It right? yeah. got hammered, right? And valuations are valuations. And valuations are always going to be marked to their peer group. So if someone has a revenue miss, that's going to 
reverberate. But the reality is we're in a good, healthy industry that's growing by leaps and bounds. And these companies will prevail. They're, they're, these, these great companies. Is, is Mongo worth 500 a share or 120? I don't know. But I know it's a great company with real business and with real growth numbers. Yeah. Now, the book you're writing, are you going to use that as a perspective from both the client side and the, uh, let's say, the sales side? You know, the- I, I'm not going to discriminate at all. No, nope, I'm going to talk about it from, from all different perspectives. And really, again, hopefully, when someone reads my book, it's going to help them if they decide to be a, a software leader, software seller, really understand what they should and shouldn't do. Yeah. And, you know, like you, John, I mean, people, uh, you know, have your book on, on Amazon or, or they have their book on, on LinkedIn. They show all they, they tab, they use sticky notes on certain pages, right? And they're going to go back to it as a reference guide. I hope that people see from a, uh, the human aspect, from the behavioral aspect, what they need to do to really build a successful career in software sales. Yeah. Bill, um, it's already been an hour. So we, <laughs> I'm not engaging. That's our time limit on, <laughs> for Johnny and I. So let's ask you a couple easy rapid fire questions, okay? Yes, sir. How about your ideal day off of work? What do I like to do? Yeah. You know what, John? I got to be honest. I, 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 as you may or may not remember, um, I'm a stock guy. I love the stock market. I love finance. I love economics. Um, but an ideal day is spending time with my children who I have one in college, one going to college uh, and, and doing something with the, with the family. Awesome. Right? Yep. Yeah. I, I don't have to have the most, uh, uh, exciting out of work life, but I got to tell you, I love what I do. I don't get the Sunday night GBs. Okay. I'm excited to go into the office. I love helping people. I love making money and I love the excitement because as people always use the, 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 the term like no two days are the same. I've never had two days are the same. And I would think at this point in my career, I I'm tired at times, but I'm excited. And yeah, it's, it's a good tire because you're doing have you're passionate. I'm very, very lucky that I was able to integrate my passions. Yeah. But, but spending time with the families first and foremost. And how about a favorite meal on that day? It's a good question. I'm a seafood guy. So anything that was swimming, as long as it wasn't farm raised and it's wild caught, I'll eat it. You know? Have a so, favorite fish? Favorite fish. Uh, I would probably say, if we're going to go shellfish included, I would say soft shell crabs and okay. anything to do with the shrimp board. Yeah. And where we are living now, we have endless fresh, fresh, fresh seafood. Yeah. How about a favorite movie? Crash. Crash? Crash was my, my favorite movie. The way that they were able to intertwine everybody's life at the as the movie progressed, I thought yeah. it was genius, and that is, and and I think that Matt Dillon's uh, a fantastic actor. I, I enjoy that movie tremendously. Yeah, yeah. Have your best concert you ever been to? Best concert I've ever been to would probably be Crosby, Stills and Nash. Oh wow! Good yeah, no, Young Young wasn't there. Young wasn't there. It's when David Crosby just got out of jail. He was sober, and uh, I was That's in the small. Yes, yeah, sm small half-filled arena. Worst concert I've been to, if I could throw that in, there was Pat Benatar recently. Horrible. <laughs> Her husband is an incredible entertainer and guitarist. She was just saying, you saw the bubble overhead, I don't want to be here. I just want to get through it and make it happen. But uh, congratulations, she's gotten inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so she did something right. Wow. How about, last one, how about, um, do you have a favorite charity you want to talk about? So it's interesting. I uh, I would say St. Jude. Oh, and yeah. Ronald, yeah. And the Ronald McDonald House. Uh, a friend of mine who's a police officer had a son who was very, very sick. And the good news is the son ended up doing very well. But he had to go to CHOP, which is obviously one of the best children's hospital in, 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 on the planet. And at that time, 
it was going to be an elongated stay. And he was able to stay at the Ronald McDonald house mm. for, for no money, for nothing. And it made him his horror. He was going through palatable and St. Jude's to me, the fact that someone can get tier one medical treatment when their children are sick, which is probably the most traumatic time in someone's life and, and walk away with no debt, which is a blessing. And, and those are my two favorite organizations to contribute to. Great ones. Incredible. So Cap's going to wrap up here, but Bill, I think it was a fantastic session. Thank you. And I'm really grateful and thankful um, to have had you on the podcast. And I know our audience is going to get a lot out of it. Great. And I appreciate the opportunity, John. Yeah, Bill, you, uh, you did such a great job. We covered so many golden nuggets. I think you'd set a good tone for when the book comes out. We'll, we'll keep track of that. When you, when you release the book, we'll make sure we make links to it. But I just want to thank you for uh, the wisdom. Uh, it was absolutely enlightening. And uh, we thank you again for carving out time. You, you, you just nailed it for us. I think, Great. like Johnny said, I think our audience is going to get a ton out of it. So thanks for being with us. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity again. You got it. And for everybody listening, thank you for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.